Amen. While our kids are making their way to Children's Church, off to my right and your left, I invite you, if you have your Bibles, would you take them out, uh, turn them on, and join me at the book of Galatians, at the end of Galatians chapter 5. Again, if you are our guest, I want to say welcome. We have been in a series through the book of Galatians that we've titled Set Free, Live Free. The first two-thirds of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul spends time explaining that we have been set free by Jesus Christ from a dependence on ourselves and from our sin. And he has set us free so that we might live free uh, in Jesus Christ. And we are in the section of Galatians where Paul is explaining now what it's like to live out this freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I find it pretty easy if I take too much time looking at the world around us, I find it pretty easy to get angry. You see anger in the lives of those that you love. Maybe you're experiencing it yourself. That as you look at our political climate, as you look at our economic climate, as you look uh, if you're familiar with our convention of churches itself, I know that that's the area that I personally am struggling with and where this passage of Scripture has been particularly convicting of me. It's easy to look out into the world and identify the failures of other people. As a matter of fact, according to Scripture and what we see in our fallen condition is that every single one of us are really experts at seeing what's wrong with other people, and we're failures at seeing what's wrong with ourselves. We're experts at seeing the sin in others, but we are failures at seeing it in ourselves. And when we give way to the sinful tendency of seeing what is wrong in other people while we ignore what is wrong in ourselves, what we find is that we can tend to be people who become arrogant and proud. Like that older brother in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, we see only what is wrong with the sinner that surrounds us, and we fail to see ourselves. And when we only see the sin in other people, and we don't see the sin in ourselves, what inevitably happens is that we pull back from, we withdraw from the people that we deem to be evil or even less perfect than ourselves. We deal with them from a distance. And this is the way that the fallen world actually works. We withdraw from those that we deem as damaged or threatening, threatening to our integrity, threatening to our reputation, threatening to our lifestyle, our standard of holiness. We withdraw from the broken. We withdraw from the sinners. And we create these little holy huddles and in doing so, we damage the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we distance ourselves from those we disagree with, when we distance ourselves from those that we deem somehow damaged or, or less than us, what ends up happening is discord, enmity, strife begins to be sown as we're fighting with one another for power. And that's what we saw in the verses that we looked up last week. 
As there's this sowing of discord and tearing others down through gossip or slander, whether publicly or maybe the only way, place that you do it is in your own mind and your own heart, but nevertheless, you demean others and you slander them and you think the worst of them. Because that's not just limited to how we see other people, whether it's another political party or another company or another sports team. We do it in the church as well, which is why Paul urges us in the verses that we're going to look at this morning to live in a different way, a better way, a way that's more dependent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 25, and we'll read into chapter 6, verse 6. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, Paul writes. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are not like we are. Lord Jesus, you don't respond as we would respond. But instead, when you see us in our sin, when you see us in our suffering, you don't withdraw from us. You instead run to us. You draw near that you might heal our wounds, and that you might build us up. You don't come in anger, you don't come in enmity, you don't come in strife, but instead you come with a holiness and a gentleness and a love and a compassion that is born out of the sacrifice that you gave. Holy Spirit, I pray that this morning as we study your word that you would show us what it is to live with you by you, after you, that we might bring glory and honor to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As I shared with you last week, the verses that we just read are the second section of what is a larger section here in Galatians. It began all the way back in chapter 5, verse 13. It continues on to chapter 6, verse 10. And it's kind of governed, if you will, by two big commands that Paul introduces to us all the way back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. The negative command, if you'll remember, that he gave us is that we are not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We looked at that in detail last week about the struggle that exists between our sinful desires and the fleshly person that is crucified in Jesus Christ and the spirit who now indwells us. The second command, the positive command that Paul gives in chapter 5, verse 13, is that through love we are to serve one another. So on the one hand, we're not to give way to our sinful desires and the sins of the flesh, but instead we are to love one another by serving one another. That battle that we discussed last week between our sin nature, our flesh, and the spirit who now indwells us is true of every single one of us. And Paul instructed us last week, In the reality of the struggle, he described what that struggle looks like, the patterns of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. 
And he told us how it is that we are to win this struggle, and that is by turning to Christ and trusting in the Spirit to do what we can't do on our own. We said last week we don't have the power to overcome our sin. Our sin is always stronger than we are, but praise the Lord, our sin is not stronger than the Spirit inside of us. Amen? And so we've not been left alone. But when we turn to Christ and we trust in the Holy Spirit, He wins that battle for us. In the verses that we just read, Paul refocuses our attention to the reality that though we all might experience this struggle individually, we don't experience this struggle alone. Instead, what Paul kind of communicates, if I'm in a, the big idea for this whole ver- the, all of these verses that I've read is this, that God has bound us together as accountable individuals with a mutual responsibility to love one another as we've been loved. That's the big idea of this, these verses that we read, that God, in his grace and his mercy, has bound us, united us as brothers and sisters together, each one individually accountable for our lives, and yet somehow mutually responsible to one another to serve and love each other. He works this out in these verses. As we see this theme, as Paul seems to seamlessly flow back and forth between these two ideas of individual accountability and yet mutual responsibility. We see this notion of mutual responsibility in chapter 6, verse 1, in that first part, where Paul commands us that if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual are to restore him. There's this mutual responsibility that we have when we see a brother or sister suffering under sin to move towards that individual for the purpose of restoration. We see it also in chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul commands us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to move towards one another. We're mutually responsible in that sense. But at the same time, and in the same breath, he seems to indicate that we're all individually accountable for ourselves and our actions. Chapter 6, verse 1, in the second part of it, Paul says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. As you're moving towards that one who is suffering under sin, you must guard your own heart. You must guard yourself. Chapter 6, verse 4, he almost seems to contradict himself from chapter 6, verse 2, when he says, let each one test his own work, and then for his reason, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And he gives the reason, each one will have to bear his own load. Is Paul contradicting himself? This notion of, of being mutually responsible and individually accountable, is that a contradiction? And the answer is No. The truth of the matter is we are both individually accountable to God for our lives. The term that Paul uses there at the end of verse, six, or verse 5, that we will have to bear his own load, is in a future tense. That in the sense that one day you will each and every one as individuals stand before the Lord and be responsible for the load that you had to bear in your life. But at the same time, we are each one mutually responsible. This is the nature of the community that God, by His Spirit, is creating in the church. On the one hand, the Christian life is not a group project. I don't know about you, but when I was in college and when I was in high school, one of the things that I hated more than anything else was a group project. Why? Because there was inevitably a one or two within the group who were freeloaders. 
right? And they weren't going to put in the time or the energy or the effort. They were there to just ride the coattails of the rest of the group. And their grade was boosted by the efforts and the energies of others and the efforts and energies of those of us that put the time and the energy and the effort into the group project suffered because of the dead weight. That's not how God works. And this is actually really good news. It should lift our spirits in a sense because the truth of the matter is that our standing before the Lord is never based on a comparison to someone else. I, even though I am a pastor... And the Bible says that I bear a higher level of accountability as a leader and a preacher and a teacher of God's word. Nevertheless, I am not accountable for your obedience or disobedience. I am only ever accountable for how I have led and taught and lived my life dependent upon the gospel. Have I led in such a way that you know the commands of God and you know the heart of God and you know the gospel of God? I am only judged on my faithfulness and not yours. It's not a group project. You can be part of the most successful, healthiest church in all of the, the world and that will not get you any closer to God's favor or into heaven. You can be a part of the most dysfunctional, disruptive, disobedient congregation in all of the world. And that will not keep you from God and his grace and his mercy. So on the one hand, we're not living this group project and it's good news. But the bad news is that God doesn't grade on a curve. You know how the grading on a curve works, right? The, the professor looks and he, he averages out the grade and he finds what it is, what based on the grade, and it's not 100. If the highest grade on the, in the, the test is actually a 90 or an 85, or even, heaven forbid, it's a 65. It's a failing grade, but the highest grade was that. Then that becomes the standard that everybody else is judged by. That'd be great, right? Because I'll be real honest, if, if getting into heaven in some way was graded on a curve such that I'm compared to some of you, I'm doing pretty well. You're welcome. Wake up. But the truth of the matter is, if I was compared to some of you, I wouldn't get very far. And if we were compared to certain individuals, we wouldn't get very far. If we live our lives by this comparison game, the truth of the matter is, we would all struggle. But the truth is that God doesn't grade us based on someone else's behavior. He grades us on one person's behavior, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus' standard is perfect, 100%. And you and I fall far short of that every single time. So there's no use in comparing my life with your life. There's no use in comparing my life with anyone else's. Instead, I must test my own work and compare it against the life of Jesus Christ and him alone. And when I do that, it is humbling. Because I realize just how far I fall short of God and his glory. And I'm left humbled by the reality that I can never live up to God's standard. Which is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so beautiful because we know that Christ bore that load for us. And when our faith and our trust is in Jesus Christ, he wipes us clean, he washes us, he restores us, and he gives to us freely the record of righteousness that we can never have on our own, but that he easily accomplished. 
So on the one hand, our Christian experience is not a group project. On the other hand, the Christian community, the church, isn't a free-for-all. The world functions based on this standard of, I'm in it for myself. Last one there is a rotten egg. Eat or be eaten. Survival of the fittest. Every man for himself. That's how the world works. That's the measure of our sin, is this individualistic tendency to have me and mine and focus only on me, no matter what it means for those that are around me. Instead, the picture of the church that Paul uses both in the book of Romans and in the book of 1 Corinthians is the picture of what? A body. Such that each individual part is a part of the body. The finger, the ear, the eye. And we should be so knit together and so tightly joined with one another that we feel one another's joy and one another's sorrow. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We should be so intimately tied with one another that when our brother and sister is burdened, when our brother or sister is suffering under sin, we feel that pain and we respond accordingly. If you fall down and you break your arm, what's your response? Do you look at your arm and say, you stupid thing? Why do you hurt me like this? How dare you get broken? But isn't that how we oftentimes approach our brothers and sisters in Christ when they're suffering and when they fail? What about when we, our body is attacked and ravaged by cancer and there's a part of our body that shuts down and stops working? Do we say, you useless thing, I'm getting rid of you? Do we hate that part of our body that is hurting, that is broken, that is suffering? No, we feel this sympathy towards it. Which is why if you've been reading through the book that I distributed, the book Gentle and Lowly, there's a couple of points where Dane Ortland in that book talks about the father's love. As a father looks upon a child, a father wouldn't hate a child because the child is suffering with cancer. Instead, the father would only have a heart that is broken for that child in the pain and in the suffering and a sympathy that would hate the cancer and love the child all the more. And in the same way that the Father loves you and I, in that way as a body, we must love one another and serve one another because Jesus set for us this perfect pattern. He doesn't withdraw from those that are in pain. He doesn't withdraw from those who are suffering under sin. Instead, he moves towards us in this pattern of selfless, sacrificial love that is sensitive to our needs. And that is the pattern that you and I are called by Scripture to follow and empowered by the Spirit to follow. It's not just start doing these things. It's instead look to Jesus Christ, who is the one who moved towards the sinners, who moved towards those that suffered, loved them perfectly, lifted them up, and applied the appropriate ministry to each and every need. And when we look to his example and we see that we have fallen far short, that's when we cry out and groan in our spirit for the spirit to empower us to do what we could never do on our own, which is love. Love according to the gospel. Love according to the pattern of Jesus Christ. So what does this look like in your life and in my life? 
Paul, I think, in this passage of Scripture gives us two clear pictures, examples, if you will, of what it looks like to live a life that is individually accountable, mutually responsible, and that follows the pattern of Jesus Christ. First, Christian love serves sinners gently. Christian love gently serves the sinners. Paul gives the command in chapter 6, verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul tells the Galatian Christians that living by the Spirit requires that they pursue the very ones that their sin would want them to abandon. To shoot the wounded and keep on moving. Keep trudging on. That's a sinful tendency and a sinful mindset that says, I'm in this and I'm running my race and if you fall down beside me, then so luck. Get up and get going. Brush it off. Keep going. But instead, Jesus commands, Paul commands, the Spirit commands that we are to move towards those Not being conceited, verse 26, in which we look down on other people and think that we are so much better than them. Not arrogant, chapter 6, verse 1, the latter part, that we can just walk into sin unguarded, but we need to be on our guard, knowing that sin is not only more powerful than them, sin is more powerful than we are. But instead, we're to move towards those in sin with a humble gentleness that comes from that introspection and that recognition that I am weak, And that in comparison to Jesus Christ, verse 4, I fall far short. And if we're going to do this well, brothers and sisters, then it means that we have to have a change of our mind. A change of how we see brothers and sisters struggling in sin. When Paul uses this language that if anyone is caught in any transgression... Our sinful tendency is to approach such a person who is caught in a transgression and first and foremost to interpret this word caught as someone who's found out, someone who's discovered in sin. And when we approach them in this mindset that someone has been discovered in their sin, our sinful tendency is to treat that person almost like we're trying to clean up a toxic spill of chemicals. From a distance, we got to get our, our holy gloves on before we can deal with you. And we got to spiritually prepare ourselves. And we got to deal with you in this distance like we're almost trying to clean up a mess from a puppy in the, in the kitchen floor. And we approach one another with this disgust and this frustration and this disappointment. And we move towards them, not in grace, but begrudgingly. I don't really want to be doing this. But this isn't how the Lord sees us, and it's definitely not how he serves us. Instead, as I've already said, as we pointed out last week, what we've seen in these passages of Scripture is sin is an enemy that is more powerful than every single one of us. It's an enemy that is more deceptive than we could ever imagine. And when we see sin as this devious enemy more powerful than every one of us, we get the meaning of what Paul actually means when he says if someone is caught in a transgression. The picture that Paul has in, this, in mind when he uses this word is more like a rabbit caught in a snare. You've seen a wounded animal caught in a trapper's trap? And when we begin to see our brothers and sisters in sin as those who are caught in a net, trapped by an enemy that is more devious and more powerful than they are, our mindset towards them changes. 
We don't begin to approach them in discipline like a father who is angry or a parent who is coming to rain down rage and wrath on disciplined children. Instead, a different picture begins to come to my mind. Instead, it looks more like a lifeguard sprinting to a drowning victim, ready and willing to apply whatever is necessary to save their life. Do you see the difference? The difference between a dad who's angry and disappointed in the failed behavior of his sons, who comes in wrath to set things right, or a lifeguard who's there ever watchful, who sees the arms waving and the body go down, and who sprints to rescue. And then applies whatever knowledge is there in his heart or her heart or her life and her mind to be able to provide a band-aid if that's what's necessary, to give medicine if that's what's necessary, to give CPR if that's what's necessary. When we begin to see our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin as those that are in danger, we respond in a different grace. And we respond with this biblical picture of restoration. Paul says those of who are spiritual. In other words, those who are living by the principles in a relationship with the Spirit, such that the fruit of the Spirit is being um, born out in our lives, right? We talked about last week that Paul talks about the difference between works of the flesh, which people do, and fruit of the Spirit. Fruit can only be cultivated. We can't create it. It has to come from the Spirit within us. So those who are walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are the ones equipped to move to that person trapped by sin and apply the care necessary to restore them. The word that Paul uses for restore shows up elsewhere in Scripture in, two, in one specific way. In the Gospels, the disciples, the fishermen specifically of the disciples, are said when Jesus finds them, they are mending their nets. The word for mending their nets is the word that is translated here as restore. It was also a term that was used in the medical field to set a broken bone. The purpose of the fishermen is to take something of value, take something essential, and restore it to its formal use, former usefulness. They weren't going to throw it out. They weren't going to discard it and throw it away, burn it or anything else. Instead, they're repairing it so that they can throw it back in the water. A doctor who mends a broken bone doesn't look at it and go, well, it's, it's, you're never going to use it the same way again, so who really cares? No, the doctor's purpose is to res reset that bone so that you can use it, hopefully, as close to the, the way that you used it before it was broken. That's the purpose of Christian discipline. Church discipline is always meant to be restorative in its nature, not punitive. It's meant to take a brother or sister who is fallen and restore them to their former usefulness. And when we approach church discipline in that way, when we see it in that way, then we are quick to run to those who are suffering in compassion and in gentleness and in the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we'll respond sooner we don't wait until it's too late and we're upset and we're angry and divisiveness is set in. Instead, we move towards one another in the regular work of discipleship. Do you see the united, the same word? Discipleship, discipline. Discipleship, discipline. Disciple is the root word in that. 
And so discipline doesn't always look like kicking somebody out of the church because they're refusing to repent of their sin. If we move towards one another before it becomes a crisis, it's a whole lot easier to disciple someone into a restored pattern of life. We're to move towards one another gently because this is exactly how Jesus moved towards us. He didn't come in wrath. He didn't come in anger. He didn't come as father stomping his way down the hall to set things right. Instead, he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant that he might meet us in our sin and save us from our sin. And that's the pattern that we're to follow as his followers. But also, Christian love doesn't merely serve sinners gently. Christian love serves the suffering generously. You see in this that Paul says, specifically in verse 2 of chapter 6, bear one another's burdens. It's easy for us to think that he he contradicts himself when you get to verse 5. Each will have to bear his own load. Though the word bear is the same, the other word is different. There's a difference between someone's burden, which weighs them down, which causes them to suffer, and the load that you and I are each and every one individually responsible to the Lord for. A knapsack that only we can carry and that we will never be able to give away. But the truth of the matter is, as we live in a world that has fallen and broken by sin, as each and every one of us sin in our own right, what we see is that sin and suffering are intimately tied together. Where there is sin, there will be suffering. Because suffering is the natural consequence, both in our personal lives, of our sin, someone else's sin against us, or the suffering that the world even experiences because of our sin against God and against it. And Jesus didn't merely come to address the problem of sin. He came to heal the consequences of sin and set all things right. Isn't that what Jesus' ministry is? As he walks around and as he ministers and he proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand, what does he do? Every miracle of Jesus Christ is simply undoing the consequences of sin. The only reason that there are lepers is because of sin in the world. The only reason that there is a woman who is struggling in John chapter 4 with her relationships with men and sexual sin is because of sin in the world. As Jesus works the miracles, he's undoing the curse. And what Paul says in this verse assumes that you and I have burdens. to ignore the burdens, to hide the burdens, to attempt to deal with the burdens in your life on your own and in your own strength is to live a lie. The truth of the matter is every single one of us has burdens and we are responsible to move towards one another to sacrificially, generously support those that are weighed down by discouragement, death, disease, danger because of someone abusive in their life, doubt because of the attacks of the enemy, disease even of itself. 
And in order to bear burdens, we must sacrifice for the sake of those individuals. Because the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, when we enter into someone's life who is suffering, it's not a short-term trip. If we're actually going to live as Paul expects and as the gospel expects, we have to be willing to be in it for the long haul. Someone who is suffering from abuse for decades is not going to get over it overnight. Someone who has been dealing with anxiety and depression, someone who is dealing with lust and addiction, they didn't get there overnight and it's not going to be healed overnight. Granted, I understand there are testimonies where the Holy Spirit comes in and redeems somebody such that they never want to touch the drug again, they never want to look at porn again, they're never anxious ever again, they never deal with their eating disorder ever again, but I would say that that is the exception as opposed to the rule. The truth of the matter is it's a long journey into suffering and brokenness and it can be a long journey out. And you're going to get messy on the way. But true Christian love moves towards those who are discouraged and suffering that we might support them. One very brief specific example that I think that Paul gives is in chapter 6, verse 6, when he commands the Galatians to share all good things with those who are teaching them. Paul is writing, remember, to the Galatians. And the Galatians are suffering because false teachers have come in proclaiming a false gospel. This has caused problems in the church and probably the people who have felt it the most are who? The teachers. The ones who are faithfully attempting to stand for the gospel. They have watched their loved ones abandon Jesus Christ. Their hearts are broken as any faithful pastor or teacher or elder would. They are left in this place where friendships are broken, where they are betrayed, and they're potentially left destitute as the people that they are meant to shepherd are following false shepherds and pursuing after wolves. And Paul calls them back to sacrificially, generously love and support the very ones who are loving and supporting them who are bearing their burdens, who are teaching faithfully the word of God. Generously generously giving of our finances to the ministries of the church, however, is not all that Paul has in mind. Instead, we are to move towards those who are suffering and do what we must, what we can, to support and bear their burdens together. Because this is what Jesus did for us. Isn't it? That he entered into the world... But Jesus didn't merely come along and say, hey, let me help you carry that sin. Jesus did something even greater. He said, come and let me take that sin. Isn't that what we've been learning in this book, Gentle and Lowly? That Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I love the picture that Dane Ortland uses in that book that says the yoke of Jesus Christ is less like that big wooden beam and more like a life preserver that is thrown to a drowning person. If you would just take it, it won't weigh you down. It will lift you up. Jesus Christ stands ready to enter into your sin and into your suffering and rescue and redeem you from it today. If you are in Jesus Christ, even if you were abandoned by all of your friends, know this today, you're not alone because the Spirit of God is with you and in you.
But brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that it can never be said of this congregation, this faith family, that there is anyone in our midst who is living life alone. May we be a people who trust others with our burdens and our sin because it's two-way street. We have to be humble enough to allow ourselves to be helped and we have to be loving enough to help move towards the damage, to move towards the brokenness, to step into the mess that we might manifest the ministry of Jesus Christ to sinners and sufferers just like Jesus. How can you be more like Jesus today and this week? Who is there in your life that you can move towards in Christian love to serve gently or generously? Maybe you're in this room this morning and you need to be the one to humbly surrender and say, I need help because I'm trapped in a battle with an enemy that I can't beat. And I'm suffering because of it. Jesus Christ will lift you. We will help you if you would just ask. So I'd invite you now to bow your heads and close your eyes. And go before the Lord and cry out to the Holy Spirit and ask, Holy Spirit, how do I respond well to this message of the gospel? Who can I serve? How can I allow myself to be served if that's necessary? Spend some time in prayer and I'll close this in a moment.